Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure has seemed like a good while since I was on the air last, uh, but then again, it's been about a good four days since I was on the air last. However, uh, there is good news to report during the time uh, when I was on the air last until now, I have I had the time to um, prepare for um, this uh, podcast segment, which is a good thing. And it's not just the fact that I had time to prepare for this uh, podcast segment, but I've uh, decided that this podcast segment, To the Fire of His Genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream by Kirkpatrick Sale, is going to be the final one of this uh, book series uh, discussion. So think about it. We are now into episode 10, uh, the final uh, segment. You know, the final segment, a.k.a. the epilogue. I don't just see it as an epilogue, but rather this segment is going to focus on legacy. In other words, we're going to figure out for ourselves what, how we should go about defining Robert Fulton's legacy. I see it as one of, um, that could go both ways. However, it would be best for me to tell you all more in person through this uh, segment as to why his legacy is one that could go both ways. Of course, when we think of both ways, maybe the best way to describe that is for better and for worse. In other words, yes, there were some unique accomplishments that Fulton himself did with regards to the steamboat. Not just the steamboat, but also what the steamboat was able to do in terms of, in terms of not just uh, so much transportation, but how the steamboat became a uh, revolutionary, a revolutionary um, advancement in terms of uh, technology. However, we may also be forced to realize that um, that with this um, advance in technology, that there would would be some. Uh, negative repercussions um, down the road. So let's fasten our seatbelts and get prepared for uh, this final uh, segment to the fire of his genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream. Now I should point out that uh, the last time I was on the air we uh, learned that uh, Robert Fulton died in uh, mid-February of 1815. He died from what was called uh, consumption or back of course, we know what that means in today's time, uh, tuberculosis, but back then it was referred to as a consumption. Basically, it had to do with, um, it was an infectious disease. Uh, Fulton uh, suffered um, many um, internal issues um, in that he endured weight loss. He saw um, infection of uh, other organs. In other words, the, the disease itself occurred or rather originated in one organ only to spread to um, other uh, parts of his body and sadly as a result of that um, he dies um, a few short days later on February the 23rd of 1815 so our first leadoff question is the following with regards to um, how we want to ultimately, in the end, define his legacy. So the first question is the following. Uh, besides a funeral service, was anything else done shortly after in honoring Robert Fulton? Does anybody want to take a guess? Uh, 
Well, the answer is yes. There was something done shortly after uh, Fulton's passing. I'll give you some choices as to what could have been done. Uh, choice A, was there uh, a parade in uh, New York City? Choice B, did a new street go about getting built? Or choice C, were there, um, was there a fireworks celebration honoring Fulton for all he had accomplished? The answer is choice B. Um, it turns out that um, a new street got built that um, it, not so much that it honored Robert Fulton, but it also had to do with his work. And that the new street that would go about getting built uh, ended up uh, connecting Robert Fulton's uh, two ferry boat service stations. One of them being Paulus Hook Ferry along the Hudson. And there is a place in New Jersey called uh, Paulus Hook. Obviously, that's not, not far from the New Jersey-New York line. And then you have the Brooklyn Ferry along the East River. So it took about a year for this bridge to get uh, completely built, which it did in uh, 1816. The street became known as Fulton Street. Well, I think that's a nice, um, a nice uh, little tribute. Of course, you know, when someone of high stature does pass away, it doesn't automatically mean that, that statues will get done. It may not automatically mean that other, what do you call it, uh, sculptures uh, would get done. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but, um, but I think starting out with something small is a good way, um, is a good beginning. Now, we have to go now 86 years after Robert Fulton died. Okay, he died in 1815, but let's forward 86 years later in 1901. The year 1901 would be the first time since Fulton's passing that a monument honoring the late Robert Fulton was established. So who would go about um, establishing this um, monument? Was it uh, the New York State Historical Society? Was it uh, Congress? Or was it the Society, or was it the American Society of Mechanical Engineers? Well, the answer is choice C, folks, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. They came together to set up a, uh, and raise the money to set up a bronze plaque along the south wall section of the Trinity, of the Trinity Churchyard, where Mr. Fulton is buried, and in 1906, the Robert Fulton Monument Association got established in New York. It was headed up by uh, Mr. Cornelius Vanderbilt. Whenever I think of Vanderbilt, folks, uh, how about Vanderbilt University? Uh, Cornelius, I want to I say Cornelius Vanderbilt's grandfather is the one for whom uh, the university is named after. But nonetheless, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt um, proposed plans uh, that would um, enhance Robert Fulton's image behind, um, behind the, the man whom uh, to many people was the uh, pioneer or the great, um, what do you call it, uh, leader in steamboat innovation. However, these plans never got materialized. In other words, they never were able to go through because of uh, funding issues. So, it seems like all of a sudden now there's a little bit of a setback 
in um, honoring Robert Fulton. Well, let's not um, rush so quick to judgment here, uh, because in 1909, it would be a hallmark year for honoring Robert Fulton, considering that a full-size replica of the original North River steamboat was constructed to where the replica boat navigated the Hudson River's waters, which included um, not just the, um, the replica itself uh, navigating the Hudson River's waters, but the event itself also um, consisted, or rather I should say comprised of having uh, an assortment of celebratory festivities that lasted two weeks. Well, to me, I think that's great. I mean, after all, hey, if you want to honor the guy, then yes, even a full-size replica of the North River Steamboat would cost money. But if you have the, the resources and the means to do it, then go for it. And this is a great way to honor Mr. Fulton, considering that, um, of course, yes, there will always be those who said that John Fitch should have been the one that was that deserved credit for being the first to um, to have a um, steamboat on the waters, given that he did that in 1787 during the time of the Constitutional Convention. However, many people still to this day will associate Robert Fulton as being the first, largely in part because of whom he was connected to. The Livingstons. You know, Robert Livingston, a.k.a. Chancellor Robert Livingston. Think about it. You know, yes, John Fitch was a pioneer in his time, but did John Fitch have connections to the Livingstons? No. You know, it's unfortunate now that all of a sudden we're thinking, okay, if so-and-so doesn't have connections to a powerful family like the Livingstons, then maybe that individual shouldn't be given credit. Well, in this case, Fulton tends to get more of the credit, largely in part because of whom he was connected to from a business standpoint and for whom he also married into. He married um, Chancellor Livingston's niece, a.k.a. Harriet Livingston. And it also helped, too, that the Livingstons were related to the Schuylers, the Van Heusens, the Cortlands, the Rensselers, you know, Stephen Van Rensselaer, who, was, who would be the founder of uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, outside of Albany. So when you marry, in, marry into a family, um, not just through marriage, but you're marrying into them for business purposes, all of that um, brings accolades. All of it brings prestige. It brings a sense of um, power, a sense of power that just can't be taken away. So for Robert Fulton, uh, I could see how many people would view him as the one whom was, um, whom was responsible for the steamboat invention, largely because of his connections to the Livingston family. What I also found interesting to note is that nearly 30 years after he died, it come, we have to go to 1844, his original native hometown in Pennsylvania got renamed Fulton Township. And this is in uh, Lancaster County, uh, PA. It also, um, it also should be um, mentioned that, uh, that there are towns in uh, the states of Missouri, New York and Ohio named after him. Um, 
I know, for example, in Ohio, you have Fulton uh, Township. Uh, not, not Fulton Township, but there is a um, there is a town in Ohio called Fultonville. I actually I take it back, which is just west of Toledo, right near the uh, Ohio-Michigan line. And then there are um, eight states whom have counties named in uh, Fulton's honor, being as far uh, as being as far away as uh, Arkansas, as far south as Georgia, into the Midwest like Illinois, Indiana. Ohio, and then in the Ohio Valley, like uh, Kentucky, and then in the Northeast, uh, being New York and Pennsylvania. How fitting it for New York, because there is a county called Fulton County. There is even a chain of lakes in the Adirondack Park in New York State called the Fulton Chain of Lakes. And there is a county in Georgia um, be, that's uh, Fulton County, where, uh, it, where um, Atlanta, Georgia is located in. Uh, or parts of Atlanta, I should say. As a matter of fact, uh, for those of you who are, um, for those of you who keep up with uh, professional sports teams in Atlanta, um, whether you're a Falcons fan or a Braves fan, regardless, at one time uh, there was a stadium in in Atlanta called Fulton County Stadium. Uh, the Atlanta Falcons and the Atlanta Braves uh, shared the stadium up until the early 1990s, and uh, Fulton County Stadium was named after none other than Mr. Robert Fulton. So, hey, it's great that we've got towns, that we have counties named after this fella. What became uh, the first, rather, let me rephrase that, <laughs> because now we're going to be talking about a person. And what I should uh, mention here is that um, we're not just talking about a person. We're also going to be talking about someone else whom had uh, challenged Fulton before his death. And we're also going to be talking about a court case that, um, that does impact Robert Fulton. And ironically, the court case um, takes place after Fulton has passed away. But I should point out that it does all of this that we're going to discuss next uh, pertains to the existing monopoly that's on the, rec on the books Think about it. Robert Livingston dies in 1813, folks. Robert Fulton dies in 1815. I think it's fair to say that we're left to wonder this question. What is the status of the monopoly? Has this monopoly dissolved now? Or or, or is there a, uh, what do you call it, a special um, clause in the monopoly? Well, let's find out. Our next question is following. Whom became the first to challenge the Hudson River monopoly after Robert Fulton's passing? I don't know if many of you all know this man's name, and that's okay, but I'll, I'm going to um, give you all a little um, brief um, synopsis on him. His name is Thomas Gibbons. Thomas Gibbons was originally from Savannah, Georgia. Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking, okay, this guy's from from Savannah, Georgia, and how in the world could he be challenging the Fulton-Livingston uh, Monopoly, or a.k.a. the Hudson River Monopoly? Well, it turns out that since 1801, or rather the year 1801, uh, Mr. Gibbons moved northward. And by this time, he was in his mid-40s. He moves to Elizabethtown, a.k.a. present-day Elizabeth, New Jersey, where he ended up becoming neighbors with a fellow distinguished politician. 
Do, do any of us remember a man named Colonel Aaron Ogden from a previous podcast? Yes. So that's for whom Thomas Gibbons becomes uh, neighbors with. Now, prior to Robert Fulton's passing, Colonel Aaron Ogden, remember, we have to remember Colonel Aaron Ogden took uh, the Livingston Monopoly um, matter to court. He tried to get it um, dismantled. He failed, but he was able to come away with something. And this was largely in part because of what Livingston and Fulton had done for him. So prior to Fulton's passing, Colonel Aaron Ogden had agreed through a compromise to pay the Livingston, to pay Robert Livingston and Robert Fulton for a 10-year monopoly. And this isn't, we're not talking about the Hudson River monopoly right here. This 10-year monopoly would be for Mr. Git for Colonel Ogden to be allowed to maintain his ferry line, being that of the New Jersey ferry from Elizabeth, the New Jersey ferry that ran from Elizabeth to New York City. So in other words, he was allowed to have his own monopoly, but he had to get the consent through uh, Robert Livingston and Robert Fulton. So therefore, this 10-year monopoly that he has in place will hopefully prevent other uh, court uh, matters uh, from uh, taking center stage. Now, Thomas Gibbons, given that he and, Aaron, and Colonel Aaron Ogden were neighbors, did the two men go about forming a business partnership pertaining to steamboat operations? They did. However, come 1818... Thomas Gibbons ended the partnership with Colonel Aaron Ogden. Why did he end the um, partnership? Well, we're going to find out here shortly. But Thomas Gibbons wants to go out on his own. However, it's one thing to go out on your own. But what is Thomas Gibbons doing? He is competing against Aaron, Colonel Aaron Ogden. And it, it turns out, folks, that Thomas Gibbons is pretty much replicating the same thing that was already done under the uh, existing partnership between him and Ogden. Gibbons started his own steam ferry service from the same dockyard stations in Elizabeth, New Jersey to Manhattan, just like, Cur like what Colonel Ogden himself was already doing. I almost have to wonder, if is Gibbons looking for revenge. Is Gibbons trying to do something to undercut Ogden's business? Is Gibbons, is Gibbons, we have to wonder, is Gibbons opposed to this uh, monopoly that Colonel Aaron Ogden agreed to just to be able to have a business along the waterways of New Jersey and New York? It could be a lot of things. The Fulton-Livingston Monopoly Okay, many of you all are wondering, how is this monopoly still in existence even after both men are gone? Okay, the reason why the monopoly is still intact is largely due to the fact that Livingston's surviving heirs are the ones that are basically keeping the monopoly afloat and also because of the licensure that was granted to Colonel Aaron Ogden for running this ferry service between New York and New Jersey. So, 
if Robert Livingston did not have any surviving heirs, he has children, and of course there could be nieces and nephews, more so nephews, whom are um, keeping the monopoly intact. But he does have children, uh, I believe a son and a daughter, whom are um, whom are keeping this um, going afloat. And then, of course, uh, by allowing Colonel Ogden to have complete licensure for running the ferry service um, between New York and New Jersey, that's why it's going, folks. So, like I said, if Livingston doesn't have any heirs, and, and given that Fulton's wife remarried after he died, you know, Fulton's wife and children have nothing to do with this, but, but then again, their children were very young, so they wouldn't have any understanding. So... Obviously, the next in line are the heirs to Robert Livingston. Thomas Gibbons, in the end, went his own uh, way because of a personal dispute with Colonel Ogden. Sometimes that's why, sadly, partnerships come to an end. It's because there are um, disputes one person sees uh, an opportunity to go one direction, the other person's simply not interested in, in doing and in taking on a new uh, course. As a matter of fact, uh, not to get off uh, subject, but just uh, real quick, I um, was watching that uh, a TV show on the History Channel. Many of you, many of you probably know it's called "The Food That Built America." So it was a um, a competition between Dunkin' Donuts and Krispy uh, Kreme Donuts, and of course, both. Um, Businesses are still going strong today, but long story short of it was that um, a, a top-level guru for Dunkin' Donuts, he wanted to expand the business. In other words, make it a, a regional, not just a regional business, but a business that, that could expand into, um, into territory that uh, was well outside of where uh, the company originally begun. The business partner um, was totally against it. He's like, you know, I'm really not interested. Um, I'm gonna. Um, I'd like to preserve the status quo. So, long story short, the uh, the head honcho ended up paying him three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The honcho also had to take out a second mortgage, but in the end, his um, his idea of expanding and doing what's called franchising paid off in terms of uh, huge dividends in the long run. So uh, long story short of it, it's an example, a classic example of where one person wants to do something big and expand, whereas the other person just wants to keep everything as is and, you know, not uh, take that chance. So, yes, here we, ha I'm not sure what the, what the real dispute was between Thomas Gibbons and Colonel Aaron Ogden, but the bottom line is that there was a dispute and it obviously was that bad to where uh, Thomas Gibbons wanted to leave. And it's one thing to leave on not so good terms, but what does Thomas Gibbons want to do? He wants to destroy what Aaron, uh, Colonel Aaron Ogden has um, built. He wants to do whatever it takes to drive Colonel Ogden out of business from a financial standpoint. So what does Thomas Gibbons do? Well, he deliberately reduces prices on his service line to deter Ogden's customers and overall business. And you know this cannot make Aaron Ogden happy. 
you know that if, if any of us were in Aaron Ogden's shoes, we would be livid. We would be very livid to the point that, hey, look, you know, I don't have a problem with you going out on your own, but you don't need to make a fool of yourself. You don't need to um, burn bridges with people around you because even though you may be on your own, you never know when you may need to come to me or someone else for advice. Sometimes we still see that today in, um, in a working world setting or just uh, in life in general. So for Colonel Ogden, he was constantly having to go to court, seeking protection from Gibbons's actions. So if Aaron Ogden is having to go to court constantly, what, do you, what is he trying to um, uphold? He's trying to uphold his monopoly that was given to him from, the, um, from Robert Fulton and Robert Livingston. Is it fair to say that Thomas Gibbons does not like the monopoly that Colonel Ogden had? Yeah. And I'm beginning to wonder if uh, Thomas Gibbons sees this as a, um, a violation of what we think of as um, fair, um, as a, what do you call it, fair competition, a.k.a. free enterprise. So how far up the legal ladder system did the dispute between Thomas Gibbons and Colonel Aaron Ogden go? Well, believe it or not, folks, it went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Can you believe that, folks? This matter, what should have been, what could have been resolved and didn't, has now ended up making its way to the United States Supreme Court, where the High Court itself uh, was first uh, presented with the case on February the 5th of 1824, and made its final uh, decision come March 2nd of 1824. Okay, so, you know, 1824, uh, who's president of the United States during this time? How about Mr. James Monroe, the last of the Virginia dynasty in the high office? You know, James Monroe's presidency from 1817 to 1825 was often referred to as the era of good feelings. So think about it. This case is first presented to the U.S. Supreme Court on February 5th of 1824. And then come March the 2nd of 1824, that's when the final decision will get made. So we're looking at just around four weeks that the court will de decide for themselves. The, the court, it's, it's taking the court four weeks to make a decision. But we have to keep in mind that whenever court cases go to the United States Supreme Court, they don't usually get resolved in a one in one or two days. More often than not, um, the justices are having their clerks below them do research on past cases that may have borne uh, bore resemblance to what's being debated on in the present. So it, it's we have to remember that these uh, decisions just don't get made in a day's time. Now. Prior to this going to the United States Supreme Court, what had the state of New York done that actually benefited Colonel Ogden? The state of New York upheld uh, Colonel Ogden's waterway ferry service rights and issued a restraint against Thomas Gib Gibbons's rights to operate a ferry service along the same waters. Therefore, because Colonel Ogden had a monopoly, no one else should has 
any rights to be um, operating along the same route as uh, Colonel Ogden. So for Thomas Gibbons, one of his lawyers happens to be a man named Daniel Webster of Massachusetts, a very, very distinguished politician to say the least. The other man, um, I did not know, uh, well, I knew he was a lawyer, but I did not know that he was a part of this uh, representation for this uh, U.S. Supreme Court case. And some of you probably who were with me when we uh, discussed I Am Murdered um, about uh, George Wythe's death. Uh, basically, uh, I Am Murdered, it was about uh, George Wythe and uh, Thomas Jefferson and the killing and the murder that uh, shocked the country about how George Wythe died. Uh, well, long story short, William Wirt defended George Wythe's um, great-grand-nephew, uh, um, George Wythe Sweeney, who uh, sadly uh, killed his great-uncle, uh, as well as the uh, servants who whom were in the house. Um, well, actually, one of them survived, but uh, another servant uh, sadly lost their life. Um, but basically, William Wirt defended him. And William Wirt uh, went on to become a successful lawyer in the aftermath of uh, having um, defended George Wythe Sweeney. As a matter of fact, there's a county in West Virginia, um, in the, not too far from the West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio line, that's uh, known as Wirt County, uh, named after uh, Mr. William Wirt. So anyways, yes, for, um, Thomas Gibbons's, for Mr. Thomas Gibbons, his lawyers are Daniel Webster and William Wirt, Daniel Webster um, spoke uh, spoke out by um, by voicing his um, concerns to the U.S. Supreme Court. He basically stated, and uh, basically he um, he said before the court that Congress was the one body that had complete authority over interstate commerce. Okay, folks, now, you know, commerce doesn't always have to go from point A to point B in a particular uh, location. Whenever um, goods are moving in what's called interstate commerce, what does that mean, folks? Okay, well, the product or the goods themselves originate in one state. Okay, let's say we have some goods that are shipping out of Richmond, Virginia, and the final destination is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So interstate, folks, when we th when you, one way to remember interstate commerce, think of the interstate highways. You know, Interstate 95 is not confined to Virginia. It's a north to south interstate that starts, that goes as far north as Portland, Maine, and as far south as Miami, Florida. Think of like, even though it's not a interstate, but it's a uh, national road, uh, US 301, US 1. That's a north-south um, road that goes from Maine down to um, Key West, uh, Florida. So think when we think of interstate commerce, we think of uh, originating in one state and then ending uh, with its final destination being in another. So for um, Daniel Webster, he has, um, he's emphasizing here that Congress has complete authority over interstate commerce, a.k.a. commerce moving or originating in one state and finishing out in another. 
And what's interesting around this time is that by 1824, commerce, commerce itself, not that it already had begun to take on a more meaningful um, perspective, but but come this time in 1824 with this uh, court case here um, that's at stake, um, commerce is impacting not just um, the decision that the justices on the court will make in this case, but Congress itself is dealing with um, with um, with some unique issues because there are a lot of um, sectional matters that are impacting um, North northern states and southern states uh, sectional matters that um, where there could be some compromises but even the compromises alone may not be enough to uh, stave off what would come by the late 1850s and then the inevitable that uh, happens in 1861 uh, what do you think I could be referring to folks the Civil War so commerce itself like I said, when if we really want to get a good understanding of commerce in the U.S. Constitution, there is the Commerce Clause under Article One, Section 8, Clause 3, that basically states that Congress has a complete authority uh, to regulate uh, interstate commerce um, in an assortment of ways, basically. So we have to now wonder, okay, how, what's going to be the ruling on this? Well, it turns out, folks, that the United States Supreme Court ruled in favor of Mr. Thomas Gibbons. There, there is a reason for why Mr. Gibbons, uh, why he uh, won this case. Well, let's find out. Well, for one, the high court ruled that Congress had and of course still does to this present day the right to regulate interstate commerce. But is it fair to say that in 1824 commerce was more than just operating boat ferry services from one location to another um, to another spot? Yes. Uh, when, when we think of commerce, folks, uh, commerce is so many things. You know, I work in the trucking industry, so basically, you know, it's regardless of whether it's a non-guaranteed shipment matter or a time-critical shipment, the bottom line is it's commerce moving on a truck, getting from point A to point B, and making sure that it either deli that it delivers around its projected delivery date, or in the case with me and um, my being a solution center service representative, and making sure that the shipment delivers on a definitive day, date, and time without fail. Commerce also uh, involves uh, trains. It can involve automobiles, airplanes, planes, trains, automobiles. Then you've got uh, ships uh, transporting goods uh, from one ocean to another. We have commerce involving nations multiple nations throughout the world. So there again, in 18, even in 1824, just like today, commerce itself is more than just one thing. And in 1824, the, the court ruled that 
commerce was more than just operating a boat ferry service. And who is the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court in 1824, folks? He's been at it since 1801, a Virginian, a.k.a. John Marshall, Thomas Jefferson's cousin. Believe it or not, yes, folks, yes, Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall are cousins. Their mothers were um, members of the Randolph family, very powerful family in Virginia. So that's how uh, the men, how both of those men are related uh, in that their mothers not only were Randolphs, but their mothers were sisters. So com commerce itself also involves anything that's uh, tangible. And what do I mean by tangible? Anything that can be sold and purchased, or I should say bought. So in other words, commerce involves sellers, that is, who, people who are selling the goods, the vendors, the merchants, the purchasers, the customers, the buyers, the receivers. Commerce involves multiple parties. Commerce from a navigation standpoint involves trade with foreign nations across the oceans, as well as it was noted in the Constitution amongst the several states, several states being at the time that the Constitution was written in 1787, the states meant the 13 states, a.k.a. the original 13 colonies, and states being with an S at the end, plural, meaning that it also would have applied to other states that would have been admitted into the Union over time after the Constitution got ratified by the states. So, Okay, the um, high court has ruled in favor of Thomas Gibbons. And what does that mean for Colonel Aaron Ogden? That means that his monopoly along the New Jersey-New York waterway is unconstitutional. In other words, is it fair to have someone running a monopoly along the waters? No because it's a violation of um, interstate commerce. It's a violation, we could say it's a violation of free enterprise. Uh, it's also a violation of, um, it, it's just, a, um, it's not a safe, sound uh, means of um, proper um, business practice. So, two years after the United States Supreme Court um, made its ruling, in 1824, the year 1826, saw the North River Steamboat Company go completely out of business. The monopoly was broken up. Now, of course, I, I had to be reminded when I read this book that um, more often than not, what I had learned uh, through from history books is that whenever I had learned about monopolies being broken up, it was usually at the start of the 19th century when Teddy Roosevelt was in office. He was, uh, he was given a nickname called the Trust Buster. In other words, he broke up the monopolies, uh, most notably the railroad monopolies, because he saw how the monop those railroad monopolies were discouraging fair competition. They basically were um, catering only to um, a select few whom could afford railway uh, transportation when the um, rail lines should have been opened to the greater public. And of course there was an act at the start of uh, the 20th century known as the Hepburn Act 
which pretty much uh, set in regulations for, um, for the railroad industry. We may not have uh, regulations just yet in the 19th century, but the United States Supreme Court ruling in this uh, case between Gibbons versus Ogden marks a huge uh, start in the right direction. And how ironic in 1826, uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both uh, passed away, uh, the same year that the uh, Livingston-Fulton monopoly was broken up. Uh, what all changed shortly after the Fulton-Livingston monopoly fell apart? How about a greater presence of free enterprise involving steamboats? By 1828, 12 steamboats per average by day were docking at Albany and New York. That's a, that's a big step in the right direction. However, let's move forward a decade later where more than 100 steamboats were operating along the Hudson River. And by the 1850s, more than 150 steamboats were in use transporting 2 million passengers, making the Hudson River the world's busiest waterway system, along with New York being America's busiest port. I tell you, what a difference... This uh, makes, considering that um, there had been a monopoly along the Hudson Riverway system for some time, and only for it now, think about it, nine years after Robert Fulton dies, the monopoly is finally broken up. Had um, Colonel Aaron Ogden not gotten a 10-year monopoly through Robert Livingston and Robert Fulton, and by the time that uh, Fulton died... Um, the monopoly would have ended a lot sooner. But believe it or not, it did have to take a court case, not only to um, rule in favor of someone who uh, went his own way, but also uh, to end uh, the monopoly system along the waters altogether. Uh, prior to and after 1807, the year of Robert Fulton's steamboat voyage along the Hudson River, where had America seen its greatest population expansion? Where do you all think the greatest population expansion had occurred? In middle America, most notably along the Mississippi River Valley system, where roughly close to two and a half million people established new settings between 1810 to 1830. Thanks in part because of the steamboats that transported people, but also the port cities whom thrived economically in making these places habitable. So when I'm thinking of uh, port cities along the Mississippi uh, River Valley system, folks, I could be thinking about, say, New Orleans, uh, Natchez. I could be thinking about Mobile, Alabama, um, maybe Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, and maybe uh, even Saint, what we now know as uh, St. Louis, Missouri, uh, just to name you a few uh, places along the um, Mississippi uh, River Valley Corridor. Now, uh, let me just throw out a quick bonus question. Uh, does anybody know where the Mississippi River actually starts? It doesn't start in Mississippi. It actually starts in Minnesota. Keep that in mind. What group of uh, people, or rather I should say uh, peoples, suffered the worst behind steamboat waterway movement. Okay, you know, here we've gone from talking about all these wonderful things that have happened 
since the monopoly has broken off from completely dissolved and now all of a sudden we're faced with some unpleasant trees okay now we've gone we've talked about for better and it's fair to say we might be going now for worse so the group of people that suffered the worst behind the steamboat waterway movement were the Indian tribal nation societies that were east of the Mississippi. Most notably, the tribes from the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Creek, Choctaw, and uh, Muscogee, to name a few. These uh, Indian um, nations um, occupied swaths of territory or land in the states most notably of Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. It should be worth noting that between 1801 to 1845, roughly 40 major conflicts ensued between white settlers, the U.S. Army, and Indian nations in the um, in, in, uh, east of the Mississippi. The majority of these conflicts did see Indian societies prevail in the never-ending quest to prevent further encroachment upon their ancestral lands. can only imagine just how many um, times uh, the Indians found themselves at war, not over, um, not over whom would control uh, territory uh, from, within, um, from within the Indian uh, tribal villages, but over, um, but over uh, long-term ramifications that involved uh, outsiders. After all, it is fair to say that um, Indian nations viewed uh, Europeans as invasive species. In other words, they were never native. They were non-native people who never had any true origins to to America in their eyes. And it was the same way even when the first wave of English settlers arrived into what we now know as uh, Jamestown, Virginia. They were attacked upon once they um, arrived um, onto land. Now, um, in 1828, uh, two years after John Adams and, Pre and um, Thomas Jefferson uh, have passed away, uh, four years after uh, the United States Supreme Court's uh, landmark ruling in Gibbons versus Ogden, Andrew Jackson gets elected president and is the first president from America's western frontier. What does Andrew Jackson do, folks? Let me ask you this. Is he a friend of the Indians or is he anti-Indian? I know I'm sounding harsh, folks, but, uh, but the reality is that Andrew Jackson um, decides to go about uh, getting Congress um, involved in the... Um, in the matter um, that pertains to Indian uh, civilizations east of the Mississippi, he persuades Congress to um, enact uh, a piece of legislation that did go into law in 1830 called the Indian Removal Act. This act sadly forced thousands of Indians off their ancestral lands and relocated many of them west of the Mississippi River into territory that became known as Oklahoma. And, of course, it wouldn't be until 1907 that Oklahoma um, was admitted as um, the nation's, uh, as America's 46th state into the Union. But the removal of these uh, Indians off of their ancestral lands, uh, most notably the removal of the Cherokee Nation, would be known as the Trail of Tears. 
And sadly for many of them, um, while they were um, being forced to relocate, many of them died by the thousands en route to uh, what we now know as Oklahoma. Between 1820 and 1844, roughly 100,000 Indians were removed from their native lands by means of trickery, broken treaties, bribery, theft, means of force, a.k.a. violence, going to war against the U.S. government. It's fair to, to also say that nature, I mean, if the removal of Indians was bad enough, it is also fair to say that nature was profoundly impacted along the Mississippi River. With steamboats, why so? Because it's one thing to uh, encourage um, to encourage new settlements along the Mississippi River Valley, but that also means with new settlements come um, unregulated hunting. And with unregulated hunting, it results in uh, the demise of wildlife. Historians know that thousands of species of wildlife were pretty much um, decimated to where their numbers never recovered and were uh, eventually went extinct. And uh, I do know that uh, it wasn't until about the year 1918 uh, that Congress uh, passed legislation um, that had to do with um, regulate with uh, hunting regulations. So prior to the 20th century, you could go out and hunt whenever you wanted. But as America expanded and people were going westward, these um, hunting, um, we call it these, um, the practice of hunting became so rampant to where um, more species of wildlife were becoming uh, decimated at greater levels. Had Robert Fulton's uh, North River Steamboat uh, Service lost anyone in terms of employees or passengers because of negligence? I'm sure many of you are wondering, why is this important? Well, there's a reason why it's being mentioned. Uh, fortunately for Robert Fulton, um, his business operation had no loss of life. However, um, the Mississippi River system became notorious for steamboat disasters where accidents, along with the loss of human life, had become an acceptable norm considering the primary objective for steamboat business operations was making money, a.k.a. profits. So in other words, you got a full crew of passengers on your steamboat, hey, that's fine, we'll cram everyone in. And as long as the boats are moving, we don't need to be worrying about the internal systems. Well, it, it took, um, at the beginning of the 1850s, around 1852, Congress uh, passed the first federal regulations um, making it uh, mandatory that uh, licensure of captains and pilots was uh, went into full effect, including inspection of boilers. So think about it. At one time, folks, a captain and pilots of, of these steamboats did not have to be licensed. It's kind of scary to think all of a sudden you could be on a boat, and then all of a sudden if the boat uh, wrecked, and it was determined that, say, the captain didn't have any licensure? Yeah, in today's time, people would be taking that captain to court or the company itself to court. 
Robert Fulton um, envisioned many great things along the world's waterways. But in the end, it would be his steamboat versus his underwater naval mines, because he sure was gung-ho on those underwater naval mines. But really, it was his steamboat alone that had the most profound impact. Cons largely in part because steamboats had become the brainchild for promoting free trade within America, but also along the high seas where America's vessels would no longer have to endure the wraths of impressment. From a nation whom once controlled her, only to try retaking her again during the War of 1812 that finally gave the United States its independence along the world's waterways. Who was that nation, folks? England. War of 1812, America's second war for independence. America got her independence politically from England, but at the start of this but it come the second decade of the 19th century america is really at war again this time for economic independence along the waterways well to wrap this up for this um book topic on the, the fire of his genius we're gonna this is what how we can uh, wrap it up in terms of fulton's legacy the fire of an individual's genius can and ought to be best described as a true work of art. All individuals are given unique strengths, or rather I should say talents, but how they get used is up to the individuals themselves, and how true that is even into this present day. Robert Fulton's mission behind steamboat technology advancement was remarkable when it came to general ferry boat service operations within a particular region like the Hudson River Valley. Expansion, however, like going into the Mississippi um, River, sometimes when you expand, it's not always going to yield the outcomes that you might want. Yes, Fulton, um, even though he was not alive, to see the uh, great successes along the Mississippi River waterway, Expansion by means of white settlement, white settlers moving in was one thing. It was one thing to add all these uh, states into the Union. It also meant um, a loss of luster, and that it meant displacing thousands of native peoples from their ancestral lands. The fire of uh, Robert Fulton's genius was one that knew no boundaries, which ultimately led to his undoing. He was, he was a man obsessed with progress, but no regards for all long-term ramifications. I see Robert Fulton as a man whom did achieve a lot. But there again, what, what, to me what Robert Fulton's undoing was, was that he was that the fire of his genius did not have a proper boundary. He was a man obsessed with work, a man obsessed with innovations, a man obsessed with anything that could benefit mankind. The problem is that there were many in America who did, who did benefit from a steamboat. 
But at the same time, there were those whose ancestral lands were taken from them, not just because of the presence of a steamboat, but because the government wanted them out. And making, making the um, reality of steamboat navigation along the Mississippi all the more a reality, which meant that come the arrival of new peoples, meant um, displacing those whom had been there before them, disrupting a way of life, disrupting ecosystems, disrupting um, all regards for human safety, uh, considering that steamboats themselves were not um, immune to um, man-made uh, disasters along those waterways. Yes, you know, Robert Fulton um, may have been a man whom, um, whom wanted great things to happen, and they did, but it did come at a price, and it probably uh, cost him his life as well. Well, I think it would be left to, up to all of you to decide for yourselves, based upon what we've discussed, what you all really think should be said about Robert Fulton. I think if you ask me where do you think his legacy lies, or how should his legacy best be defined, I would say that it's one of mixed results. His legacy can be best marked as for better and for worse. After all, the steamboat was just the first um, major breakthrough for technology, and even and it can a lot can be said for how America is today with uh, progress and getting things from point A to point B. Of course, uh, progress itself has evolved immensely over time, but technology, even technology, can have no boundaries, and with that we have to ask ourselves how much technology is required just to satisfy one group of people but yet displace um, another group of people to where they may never recover from what was um, invented or um, improved upon to where um, to where one group prevails and another group there again um, is left out of the equation well, thank you for your time as always, and um, I hope to be back on the air again soon. Um, but when I'm on the air again next, we uh, will have a new uh, book topic uh, discussion. And regardless of what the topic will be, it will be relevant for sure. Thank you for listening and continue to get the word out because one thing I was very impressed upon during my time off was seeing those numbers continue to go up. So keep getting the word out to those whom would like to come to Anchor. Just tell those people it's free, the opportunities are limitless, and once you get going, the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Take care and, st and stay safe, and thank you once again.